Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Welcome to our Easter worship services. This is the uh, most attended day of the year, most attended worship service of the year. And so if you're visiting us for the very first time, you're not alone. Uh, We're glad that you're here. If you sporadically attend, I am glad that you came back today. You could not have picked a better Sunday to come to. I don't want to make you feel guilty at all for not coming more regularly. You picked the best one to come to, and I hope to see you next Easter too. But in the meantime, I want to personally invite you to our worship services next week, because next week I'm going to start a new biblical sermon series on parenting. Now, you might think, well, my kids are already out of the house. This sermon series is for anybody who has ever been a parent, because you know that It never ends. It just changes as your kids get older. This is for anybody who has ever been a parent and for somebody who has ever had a parent. So I think I included just about everybody in here. If you've ever been a parent or ever had a parent, this one's for you. So we're going to talk about like the parenting style, the do as I say, not as I do parenting style. Do Do you know some people who do that? I think I could even be a little guilty of that myself sometimes if you ask my kids. Or uh, that parenting style of, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to be passive and do nothing. I'm probably guilty of that one uh, at parts in my life. If you have kids and your kids are a little older and now you have some regrets, you, you wished you would have parented a little differently, you wish you would have done it a little differently, and, and now you're unable to, all the water's underneath the bridge, you, you can't go back and undo it. The Bible talks about perfect parenting. What, what you should know about perfect parenting. So you should come to that one. Now, for those of you who do have kids in the house, we're going uh, to talk about that parenting style that's, uh, I'm going to do it exactly the way my parents did it to me. Because look at me, I turned out so great that I'm going to do it exactly the same way that my parents did it to me. Or some people have a knee-jerk reaction to that one and say, I am never going to do anything that my parents did to me because I just disliked it so much. We're going to talk about all of those things. So if you've ever been a parent or ever had a parent, this one's for you. The Bible is so great. It has people in it that are just like you and me. There's some parents in there that won and some that lost. And so we're going to learn from those in the next couple of weeks. But today is not about that. Today is about Easter. Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead after he was crucified on the cross, which we remembered on Good Friday. And today uh, is about the resurrection of Jesus that is an unbelievable event that some people actually believe occurred. And so today, I want to show you why the resurrection is such a big deal. Why, do, why is this such a big deal to Christians? And I want to show you why some logical people believe it. Why thinking, rational people actually believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really occurred. I want to show you that it doesn't make you ir- ir- irrational to believe that. This isn't a conspiracy theory like aliens or... Elvis is alive today working at 7-Eleven. Didn't you see him? This isn't that. You know, in our, we're always filtering in our life. We're always filtering things. Do I believe it or do I not? Is that believable or is that unbelievable? I wasn't there. And so am I going to decide to believe the person that's telling that to me or am I not going to believe it? We're always filtering. Did any of your siblings ever tell you that you were adopted growing up? Did you believe them or did you not believe them? Was it believable or was that unbelievable? Did you ever have that weird uncle who said he wasn't born here, he was born on another planet and he's an alien? 
Is that believable? Did you believe him or did you not? We're always filtering. Is that believable? Is that not? Do I accept that to be true? Do I reject that because that's patently outright impossible to believe? That's happening all the time. Speaking of aliens, the internet tells you that aliens have been visiting planet Earth for a long time and now the government houses them at Area 51. Do you believe it? Is that believable or is that unbelievable? Your parents tell you to change your underwear. Do you believe them? Do you not believe them? Jack in the Box tells you their tacos have meat in it. Do you believe it? (laughs) Do you you not believe it? Believable or unbelievable? Jesus rises from the dead. Is that believable? Is that unbelievable? It's one of those things that is an unbelievable event. Granted, that doesn't happen every day. But there are some rational, thinking, logical people who believe that the tomb was empty three days after Jesus was put inside of it. And so today is, one, why this is such a big deal to Christians. Why does this even matter? And two, it's why thinking people could believe that it's true. But first, why is this such a big deal? Well, the Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. The word gospel just means good news, the good news, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's good news. It's good news. God does not want people to go to hell. He wants them to go to heaven. That's good news. Contrary to maybe what you thought when you were growing up or what someone else told you, God does not want people to go to hell. God wants people to go to, to heaven. But there, there is a downside. There is some bad news to this. And the bad news is that we aren't perfect. Would you agree that you aren't perfect? Would you agree that you haven't attained God's glory? The Bible says we've all fallen short of God's glory. Would you agree that you haven't attained God's glory? Granted, yes, you're more glorious than the person you're sitting next to. Totally. I, I agree with that. And so now that puts you somewhere in between the person that you sit next to and God. You, you sit somewhere on, on that glory line, somewhere in there. And the reason that you would say, I'm not quite as glorious as God, is simply because you know that there's been some things that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done. You've thought some things that you're so glad that nobody else in the room can see what you're thinking because you know that it's wrong. There's some things that you've said that you know that you shouldn't have said, and God hasn't done those things, and so that's why I haven't attained God's glory. Now, see, there's a problem with that, though, because the Bible says that that's sin, doing things that we shouldn't do, thinking things we shouldn't think. It's sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And that's where you'd say, aha, I knew it. I knew that God wanted to send me to hell. I knew that that was on his agenda. No, 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 no. That's, that's not the message. The message isn't that God sends anybody to hell. It's our own sin. We send ourselves there. It's, it's just, it's justice that we would pay for the things that we have done wrong. The wages of sin is death. But that's all bad news. And this is good news. This is the gospel. The good news is that God doesn't want people to go to hell. He doesn't want people to go to hell to pay for their own sin. He wants them to go to heaven instead. And so 
That's the gospel, that he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah, and he came to earth, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, like he never got a speeding ticket, ever. He never backtalked his mom, ever. And so when he goes to the cross, he dies. But, but I thought you said the wages of sin is death, and he didn't die. Why is he dying? He's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for my sin, and he dies for your sin, so that you have the opportunity to go to heaven. But God didn't create automatons, uh, uh, robots, where he just forces us to go to heaven. There are some people that don't want to go to heaven. There are some people that don't want to be around God at all. And so he doesn't make people go to heaven. And so that's where we get this famous verse of the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes that Jesus is, everything that the Bible says he is, whoever believes in him will not perish, will not spend eternity in hell for their own sin, will not perish, but instead they'll have eternal life. Now, how could that happen? How could you go to glorious heaven and eternal life because I've sinned? When you believe upon Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us he wasn't dying for his sin, he was dying for ours, and so when you believe upon Jesus, what happened on that cross applies in a person's life. That that death, that punishment, that sin has already paid for our sin. That's why maybe you've heard that phrase, our sins are washed away, that in Christ our sins are removed. It's not that we didn't sin, it's that we did and Christ has already paid for them. They've already met the justice. The the judge has already meted out the judgment. There's no more justice. We are clean. We are holy in God's eyes as he looks through Jesus. We are literally glorious, not because we're glorious, but because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so that's good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But notice that the good news doesn't end there. The gospel that Christ died for us. Now, that's enough for me, you know? Like, that's enough. But that's not where it ends. It says, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. The resurrection is a part of the gospel of Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, it comes out in a conversation that Jesus has with, um, with some other people who want more proof. They didn't quite believe that he was who he says he was, and he just wants more proof. They, they want more proof. They, they were the skeptics of the day. And maybe you're that way. I just want some more proof, which is kind of funny because Jesus had already been doing all these miracles, healing people, water into wine, walking on water kind of stuff. And they're like, okay, just a little bit more proof. <laughs> what? He's already done it, but they wanted more proof. And so he responds in Matthew 12 like this. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, a sign that he really is God, you know. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jesus says, no more proof for you, no more signs for you but one. There's one more, and that's going to be the sign or the proof of Jonah the prophet. Well, what's that? He describes it. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, you're familiar with that event in history where Jonah the prophet had been swallowed up by a giant fish, dies in there, and then gets spit out three days later, alive on the shore. And so just as that, so will the Son of Man, which is just another word, another phrase for Jesus, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and insinuated, obviously, is alive after that, just like Jonah. And so this is the last proof. 
This is the last sign. This is it. And so this is why this is so important to Christians, that Jesus' resurrection is the proof that Jesus can do everything that he said he can do. It's the proof. This is why this, this is so vital. This is vital for Christians because either Jesus is God, is proven by him resurrecting from the dead, and he can remove our sins, take our souls to heaven when we die, or he is not God because he didn't rise from the grave, and therefore he is unable to save us, take our soul to heaven when we die. This is, this is why the resurrection is so important, and this is why the resurrection is a part of the gospel. It's one thing to promise, I'll pay for your sin. It's one thing to promise, I'll pay your loan off. It's one thing to, to say, I'll pay your student loan off. It's another thing to do it. And so the question is, is can Jesus do it? And so the resurrection is the proof that he can do everything that he said he could do. So that's why. That's, that's why this is a big deal to Christians, that the resurrection is the proof that Jesus can do everything that he promised he could do in the Bible. And that's why belief in the resurrection is necessary for salvation because it proves that Jesus can remove our sin. Now, I, I know that, that some of you who are still kind of skeptical about all of these things might think, yeah, I, I get that, and, and I, I know that Christians so want it to be true that they just look at all of this through like rose-colored glasses, and they've just like invented the, the resurrection just in their own mind. And so today I want to give you five reasons why rational thinking logical people believe that Jesus raised from the dead. We're going to start with history. The first one is early corroborating documents. Now, I have a little bit of history in my DNA. My dad is a history teacher at heart. He did that before he went into school administration. And so, all of my family vacations included, included some sort of history in them. And so it's a little part of my DNA. So this one kind of speaks to me. And when historians are looking to provide some sort of proof that an ancient event occurred or an ancient event had certain kind of details, what they look for is other authors who address the same thing. That's what they look for, cooperation. And so we're talking first century, over 2,000 years ago. And so there are very few documents that we have all the way back to the first century, very few. Comparative to the amount of things that occurred in the first century and comparative to the amount of time that, that spanned there, very few documents. And so for historians, when they are trying to look at an ancient event like this, if one author talks about it, it's not, it's not confirmed in their mind. But as soon as one other person talks about it in some sort of antiquities writing, all of a sudden that is to them a confirmation that that was a true event in history. Even if that other person just writes about it in passing, it's a true event in history. That's all it takes for historians because it's so long ago because of how few writings they have when you get back to the first century one writing gets the idea going. As soon as there's a second corroborating document, boom, it's completely trusted as an event in history. Now, regarding the resurrection, we don't have just one writing of the events. And we don't just have two writing of the events. Three is very rare. 
because of just how few documents to the time that we have. We don't have just three documents corroborating this event. We have four. We have four historical writings that all talk about the same thing, the resurrection of Jesus, one written by Matthew, one written by Mark, one written by Luke, and one written by John. Now, today, they've all been like collected and all bound up in one book. And you'd say, well, that'd be one writing. No. These are four different authors written at four different times, written in four different places, all talking about the exact same thing. Four authors in antiquities talking about the same thing. And so when you think of that, historians, even non-Christians say that's significant. So cooperation, agreeing documents is really important to historians. But it's not just corroborating documents, it's the dating of them, how early they are. The closer to the event that a writing occurs, the more trustworthy it is to the historian because that writer didn't have time to adjust his message or to uh, fake his message or to revise his, his message because all of the people who were there were still living at the time. So the earlier that it is, the more important. That's why like in a crime scene, just even here today in a crime scene, they will quickly interview all of the witnesses. They'll take witness statements like immediately. And then if there's someone who's accused of the crime, they will immediately go and interrogate that person as quickly as they can get them. And there's a reason for that because there's not enough time to make up a story, you know, to invent the idea. And so the crime scene is we see it, we interview the people as fast as possible so they can't make up another story. Well, that's why the earlier the document, the closer to the event that it occurred, is so vital to a historian. So basically, from a historian's point of view, the earliest document is the most trusted document. The latest document is the least trusted document. That's just the way it works as historians try to document these ancient things. So we take this resurrection, the book of Mark, for instance, in the Bible. The book of Mark is written in 60 A.D., So that's about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everybody, or most people, who were alive at the the crucifixion and resurrection are still alive when Mark comes out, when it's published, when everybody can read it. And what's interesting about Mark is, yes, it's dated 30 years later, but has source content that's within seven years of the resurrection. For instance, in Mark, he talks about the high priest that was a part of the, the, the judge, jury, and executioner that occurred there. And in Mark, he says, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. He doesn't even name who the high priest is. Why not? Because everybody knew who the high priest was. It's like today, you, you don't have to say President Joe Biden because if you just said the president, you would know exactly who they're talking about. Now, if you're talking about a previous president, you would have to give the name because we have many of them. And there were many high priests. But the reason that Mark doesn't give a name is because everybody knew who the high priest was. And the high priest, his name is Caiaphas. We find that out in other parts of the Bible. Caiaphas, his job as the high priest ended seven years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so even though Mark is written 30 years after it, his source material is at worst, 
seven years after the resurrection, but it even gets better. So there's this. Um, this is written in Corinthians. Corinthians is written by Paul and is considered a much later written uh, letter in the Bible. But I want you to see what he says here. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So do you understand what's happening? He received information. He received some sort of information. And then he later on delivered it. And then he is now writing about the fact that he had received it. And then he delivered it. That's, that's what occurred here. And so what did Paul receive sometime before and then deliver it to these people? And now he's writing about it. What was it? Well, that's what the rest of the verse is about. It says that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and He appeared to James. As a matter of fact, Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people after He rose from the grave. But what's interesting about this is, when did Paul receive this information? It's when he met with Peter and James in Galatians 1, which is only five years after the resurrection of Jesus. So even later written books in the New Testament have source material within five years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so to a historian, this is impressive to have four documents written by four different people and then to have 27 different documents from the first century that have source material within, within five years of the resurrection of Jesus, all 27 books of the New Testament are all written within the first hundred years. And so that's what I mean when historians see cooperating documents, agreeing with each other, that's significant. Even non-Christian historians say this is unique. But not only the, the documents are cooperating, also they are early. Because, you know, we could write some new book about the resurrection of Jesus today in 2023, couldn't we? And we could amend the story as much as we wanted. But that holds a lot less weight than the early trusted ones. I mean, that's what's happening to American history today too, right? The longer our country goes along, we're rewriting history the way it went in the past. But a a historian, a normal historian will say, no, those early documents are the most trusted. And as time goes by, the writings become less trustworthy because of how far they got away from the original event. And so these early cooperating documents, agreeing authors, is significant. Even non-Christian historians, based on this, would believe or agree that something occurred where this tomb was empty. But not only that, you have the, the critic agreement, or I wrote up here on the screen, the opposition agreement. There are critics in the New Testament, just like there are critics today. There are critics when Jesus was around. There are people who didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. If you're, a, if you're kind of critical, if, you, if you're not sure that you believe all of this, you're not the only one. There were people in the, in the day that, that were exactly like that. And this one is kind of a funny kind of thinking here. But the people who didn't believe that Jesus was God, the critics of the day, even they agree that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was empty three days later. Even the critics of the day. I want to show you kind of how that happened here. In Matthew 28, 
says this, the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened regarding the tomb being empty and the resurrection and all of these things. And when they, meaning the chief priests, when they had assembled with the elders, they consulted together and they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and they said, you are to say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So you kind of get, get what's happening here. They get the news real quick and they try to think up of a conspiracy theory to, to kind of uh, convince people that it wasn't the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was, it was not that. But what they accidentally did is that they agree that Jesus was dead in a tomb and now he's not there anymore. If there was no Jesus, I know there are people today that say there was no historical Jesus. If there was no Jesus, if he never died, if there was no tomb, if he was never buried in that tomb, and if, if, he, never, if he was still in that tomb, then why would his critics say, yeah, 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 I know he's gone? But it's because of this reason. Like, they accidentally agree that Jesus' tomb was empty three days later. Like, they were planning on that, but they had to come up with something quick. And so the, the apostles start to, you know, oh, they're fighting this conspiracy theory. They're, they're, they're dealing with the fact that now they're accused of stealing Jesus' body. But they accidentally admit that, yeah, Jesus is real. He did die. He was buried in a tomb, and it was empty three days later. Oops. Even the critics agree. So if you're a little critical, a little skeptical about all of these things, and you say, yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the, the grave was empty. I don't think any of this really occurred. Well, those people, the critics, the skeptics of the day, they'd say, you're wrong. The tomb of Jesus had Jesus in it, we know, and it was empty three days later. Even the critics, the skeptics, agree with that. So you had the opposition agreement that the tomb was empty three days later. Now we get to another one that might today uh, seem, I don't know, controversial, but the fact that women were witnesses to the resurrection is very significant historically. I'm going to spend a little time on this just so that we understand what's happening here. In the first century, there were no cameras. You know, like today, if something occurs, we say pictures or didn't happen, you know, or I want to see the video before I, you know, give my two cents. Well, they didn't have pictures or video. So for them, it was eyewitness or it didn't happen. They relied on eyewitnesses. And so the the writers, like Matthew, for instance, the writer, writers of uh, the occurrences of this time is thinking in his head, okay, when, when I get to around to writing about this part of Jesus' life, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I've got to deal with this conspiracy theory that's, that's circling the cu- culture right now. I've got to deal with this thing, and I need to convince people that Jesus really did raise from the grave. But if that was Matthew's goal, if that was the author's goal, was to convince people that Jesus really did rise and his body wasn't stolen, he did a terrible job. <laughs> he completely messed it up. But it, because he included some characters in there that the culture considered completely unreliable, completely untrustworthy. The first thing 
that Matthew does is he writes this about the resurrection. He says, An angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. So the first thing that Matthew does is say women were the ones to to, to be there at the resurrection. The women were the ones to, to see their risen Christ first. Mark does the same thing. Mark chapter 15, it's the women that, that are watching the crucifixion. It's the women that, that uh, deal with the body. And then, and then Mark chapter 16, then it's the women who are there that see Jesus' resurrection. And everyone in the culture would have told Mark and Matthew, hey, can we just leave that part out about the women whole thing? There's a reason for that. Because in the culture, very patriarchal culture, dominating culture against anyone weaker. And so women were considered property. They, they, they were not considered reliable. You know what's wonderful? This is a completely godless culture. You know, the Roman culture is a, a godless culture. It's not a Christian culture at all. And wherever Christianity goes, it elevates women to their rightful position biblically of being created in the image of God, equal with men. But this is what happens when there's a godless nation. Women are completely subjugated. A woman was not a trusted source of information. Women were not to be relied upon. That was a man's job. And so, like, if you were watching first century CNN, I don't know if they had CNN or not, but if they had first century CNN, Remember, they didn't have video of the event, so you had to have an eyewitness on First Century CNN. They would never put a woman on CNN. It would be better for them to put a four-year-old boy than a woman because of the unreliability of the assumed unreliability of women in that culture. And so it would have been better for Matthew and Mark to put a four-year-old boy in the story than to put women in the story. And so, you know, so we have Matthew, and Matthew's like, okay, get this, guys. Look, it wasn't, Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Trust me, I have eyewitnesses. You want to know the eyewitnesses? Okay, here you go. They're a bunch of women. <laughs> and everybody's like, what? It's like, it, it's, it's April. It's, yeah, it's April. It must be, is this April Fool's? What are, you, what are you trying to tell us? If he was trying to prove to a Jewish culture in the Roman Empire that the bodies of Jesus wasn't stolen, but it was resurrected as proven by women, he completely messed up. If Matthew was doctoring his story, if he was trying to create this, if he was looking through this through, through rose-colored glasses and wanted to just prove to everyone that, yes, Jesus really did rise from the grave, he would have never have included women. And I think probably a lot of Christians at, in the era when Matthew or Mark's book came out, I bet a lot of Christians of the era were probably like, could you just please leave that part out? Like, it's making us look bad. But the, the reason that Matthew put it in there is because that's the way that it really happened. No one doctoring this story would ever put a woman in the story because people wouldn't believe it. The only reason that you would is because that's just what happened. 
The, 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 the truth is louder than a story. And so the fact that women are eyewitnesses is sig- significant to historians understanding the culture of the day. Now, our fourth reason why logical, thinking, practical people believe the events of the resurrection is a particular character in the story, like almost like a side character. His name is Joseph, Joseph from a town called Arimathea. Now, he's mentioned in a couple books in the Bible, Mark and John. Matthew also mentions him, but not by name. And we have this guy named Joseph, and this is where Joseph comes up in the story, Mark chapter 15. Joseph of Arimathea came came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and he went before Pilate and was asking for the body of Jesus. So we have Joseph, and Joseph was just a really common name. They didn't have last names in that era, and so you have to identify what Joseph are you talking about because we know like Jesus' dad's name was Joseph. It was a common name. And so how do you identify what Joseph you're talking about? Well, this is the one from Arimathea. Oh, okay. Now I know what Joseph we're talking about. So this Joseph guy seems to be a legitimate person that lived in antiquities, an actual person in human history. Remember, we're trying to figure out, is this whole story believable or not? Is this completely unbelievable, or are there enough things put together that make this a believable event? And and so we have this guy named Joseph. Joseph is mentioned in multiple of these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's mentioned in three of the four. Now, I get it that now those have all been put together in one book, but those are four different writings, four different men. So now you have multiple attesting. Uh, Sometimes historians say multiple attestation. Multiple people agreeing that this person existed because their name or their character exists in their, in their writings. So automatically, first century, 2,000 years ago, historians today say, boom, this was a legitimate person in human history. Even non-Christian historians say that this guy, Joseph, was a legitimate person, a human being. Okay? And think about this. In all of the books, the timeline's the same. He, he asks for the body of Jesus after he's crucified on the cross on Good Friday. He receives the body of Jesus, and then he puts Jesus, along with others, in his tomb. The same storyline in all three of these documents. But the important part is that Joseph, is, it's, a tes- it's testable. Remember, this is written close to when all of these things occur. And so this whole thing about Joseph and his, his participation in this, you could test it. Arimathea is only 10 miles away. You could go and knock on his door. Of course, now today, nobody answers their door. So you would ring their video doorbell, okay? And you wouldn't like talk to them human to human, but you would talk to him, you talk to Joseph through his video doorbell. And it was completely testable. Now today, we doubt Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a real character, because we can't go back and ask him. But the people of the day could literally go and ask him if he had participated. Interestingly, as it tells us here, he was not just some random schmo. 
He was a very important person in the culture. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, and generally the Sanhedrin were critics of Christ. Generally, the Sanhedrin group were skeptics. Uh, They doubted. They, They would be a part of his opponent group for sure. And there is no way that that these writers are going to throw this prominent member of the Sanhedrin under the bus unless he really was a part of the burial of Jesus Christ. There's no way because it's completely testable. As soon as, the, as, soon in, as soon as their writings come out, everybody there would have said, nope, Joseph wasn't there. They would have tossed this book in the, in the, in the trash. It, and some people who didn't know, they could go ask him and as soon as they ask him, and he says, no, I don't even know what you're talking about, the, the book would be in the trash. And so that's why an early writing is so important to all of this because it can be tested by the people right there in the culture. There's some people who knew and automatically knew, yet Joseph was there. There's some people who didn't know but could go ask other people, and everybody would have said yes. Or they could even go ask him, and those people would say yes. And so here we have multiple authors written very close to the events, so close, in fact, that the people are still alive who are a part of them, that they can now test what occurred. And so Joseph of Arimathea is a legitimate person in human history. He really existed. His driver's license said Joseph, Arimathea. I don't, I don't know. There's no last names. I don't know how they did that. I don't know what they put on the driver's license. But... He was a real person in human history. And now, as multiple people attest to his participation, it continues to prove that what occurred in in these four writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were accurate, were correct. Now, finally, I get to one that's not biblical necessarily, um, but just one that that would be a, a, a description of practicality. One reason why smart-thinking people believe the resurrection is because what's the other option? Let's go back in human history, let's look at verifiable accounts, and let's see what other storylines get us to an empty tomb. What are the other ones? Well, we know of one of them. One of them was that the apostles stole the the body of Jesus. That was one of the assumptions, that Jesus stole the body, right? Now, that doesn't really live up to the exacting, exacting standards of historians because there are no other historical documents that reveal that. Additionally, we know that Jesus appeared to hundreds of other people, and so if he was still dead and they said, yeah, no, the apostles really just stole the body, and they'd say, yeah, but I just saw Jesus eating tacos at Jack in the Box the other day. Like, I saw him alive. And so him still being dead and the apostles just moving the body, that doesn't live, that doesn't, that doesn't live up to historical standards of meeting some sort of burden of proof. Now, there's another one, though. There's another one, a really interesting uh, one, where it, this occurred in the second century, so kind of the, the next 200 years later, uh, coming through like Tertullian, that there's this thing called the, the lettuce theory. If you've heard of the lettuce theory? Oh, that's good. Okay, so the, the theory here is that the, the gardener of the, of the cemetery had a, 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 a patch of lettuce that he was growing. 
and he didn't want people trampling his lettuce patch. And so uh, he moved the body of Jesus because he didn't want people to come be visiting the tomb and running over his patch of lettuce. But there's a problem with that one too. If you don't want people trampling your lettuce, you don't make it look like he resurrected from the grave because now thousands of people are going to be trampling your lettuce. You would have told somebody where it was so that you could get them out of there so that now, now no one's trampling your lettuce. And of course, that one doesn't work either because Jesus was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people after he resurrected from the grave. And so those are, the, those are it. Those are the only two. Those are the only other two options. And neither one of them live up to any sort of historical burden of proof. Now, of course, today, now here we are 2,000 years later. Now, today, we like, can invent a lot of other reasons why we think that Jesus didn't raise from the grave. One of them that's most common is that Jesus really wasn't dead. Have you heard this one? He, he, he wasn't really dead when he went into, into the grave, that he just fainted, and then they buried him. Now, let's just talk about fainting here for a minute. Who wants to own up? I'm going to raise my hand too because I've fainted, right? So it can be manly to faint, right? So who wants to own up to have ever fainted in your life? Raise your hand. Who's ever fainted? Who's ever fainted? Some people don't really want to. Okay, we've got a great, pretty good group of people. Here's what's interesting. None of you are six feet under right now. Why is that? You don't bury people who fainted. That's not the way it works. It's, it's, it's not how people wake up. That, that, and so one of the accusations is, of course, that Jesus fainted. But if you understand what happened in Roman, the Roman way of killing people on a cross, you know. When you get killed by a Roman, you get, you get killed doubly. Okay? You, you, they make sure you're dead, and then they leave you hanging there so that everybody else walking by realizes this is what happens when you encroach upon the Roman government, so don't do that. And so you like doubly dead, like dead for a double dead, long time dead. So crucifixion means dead. Even if you take out the part in Scripture where it says that a Roman soldier came by and shoved a spear into his side and both water and blood separated came out of his body, that would mean dead. And so, what are the other options, you know? Like, just from a logical, thinking, rational perspective, what else do you have? And I know sometimes Christians are called irrational for believing in the resurrection, but I think you kind of need to be a conspiracy theorist to believe that it was anything other than the resurrection of Jesus. And so I told you I was going to give you five reasons why rational thinking people believe that the resurrection really occurred. And so here they are. Now, I'm not, I'm not a genius. I'm not the one who, who found all these. There are many men much smarter than me who have done an enormous amount of research that there's another 50 even better than this. All pointing to the fact that that grave that Jesus was buried in was empty three days later. 
There are many non-Christian historians, meaning they're not, they're not, they're, they're not looking at this through rose-colored glasses, who know that the tomb that Jesus was buried in, and there really was a historical person of Jesus, that the historical person of Jesus was buried in a tomb, and they know that that tomb was empty three days later because of all of these kind of events. And so now, as soon as someone agrees that the tomb of Jesus was empty three days later, now you're just that much closer to trying to figure out, well, how was it empty? And of course, it was a miracle. It was God proving to humans, it was the proof. It was God proving to humans that Jesus' death could really do what he says it could do. You get, you get to that point pretty quick. If there are no other options, you get there pretty quick. And so, at least today, you know that it doesn't make you irrational to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, like I said, to have your sins removed, to go to heaven when you die, God doesn't just do that for everyone. He There's a payment for everyone, but he doesn't make everybody to go to heaven. Some people don't want to. You're not a robot. And so the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We all must pay for our sin in eternity in hell. But the Bible also says that he made a way so that we don't have to go to hell. The good news is God doesn't want people to go to hell. He wants people to go to heaven. And I want you to go to heaven too. The Bible says if you believe upon Jesus, do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he lived a perfect life? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? And do you believe the unbelievable thing? And it is unbelievable. I mean, that doesn't like happen every day. Do you believe that the unbelievable thing of the resurrection of Jesus occurred? If so, that is your belief in Jesus. And his death removes your sin. Now, if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus today, you can talk to him about it. You don't need to talk to me about it. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute today? There's nothing holy or righteous about bowing your heads or, or closing your eyes. It just creates a little uh, social separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. Nothing else is happening here. And so this allows you to think of your eternity in a way that maybe you have never done before. Do you know that you're going to heaven? Would you like to know that you're going to heaven? Well, you talk to God. You, you tell him what you believe about Jesus Christ. If you're not sure what to say, I can, I can help you. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows what's on your mind. He can read your heart. You don't have to say anything out loud. But in the quietness of your own heart, this is what you could say to him. You could say, God, I know that I've done things I shouldn't have done. I realize, I know that I've taught, thought things I shouldn't have thought. And I know that there's justice for that. I know that the result of that is I have to pay for that in eternity. And I know that I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he lived a perfect life. And I believe that he, as my Savior, died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that Jesus rose from the grave, miraculously proving that he really is God. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that God the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And he's the one that cleans up your life. You don't have to clean up your own life. He'll clean your life up for you. 
And God, we as a church, we thank you and we praise you for all of these things. We thank you for these revealings. You didn't have to, you didn't have to send your son to die for us. You could have left us wallow on our own sin. You didn't have to tell us about these things, and yet you did. All of these things are your grace and mercy, and we praise you for them, and that's why we worship you today. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.